Good morning, everyone. You doing good? All right. Hey, I am excited to be with you together this morning as we just continue to explore what God's doing, what God has in plan as we contemplate, as we ask him, as we seek his calling to unite together to reach this community better. That's what we're all about. Drew just shared that. That's my heart. Uh, my name's Dan from Cornerstone. So as we continue doing this together, it's an amazing God-focused opportunity. Has anyone been excited in this process? I'm glad three of you have. That's so good. For the rest of you, hey, welcome. Let's get excited. So we're just continuing in Luke this morning. We'll be in chapter 7. And so just to check and see if you had enough coffee this morning, what is the overall theme of the book of Luke as we've been studying it? You haven't had enough coffee this morning. Certainty. It's all about certainty. Luke is writing to this guy named Theophilus about that you can trust the words and the actions of Jesus. That you can have a life of certainty as you follow Jesus. You can bank on him and all that he has said and all that he has done. And so this morning, Luke moves us from hearing about the kingdom to seeing Jesus live it out. He does that through two stories of healing that highlights Jesus living out the kingdom values we've just been looking at over the last four weeks. And so if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to read the text so we get the whole story, so we can see everything that's happening in one shot. After he had finished all his sayings, he, Jesus, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And then the next story is this. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a, cons- and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen from among us, and God has visited people, and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This morning, I have a challenge for us, something that God's been speaking to me about for a couple weeks now. Can Jesus 
work in my life? Can Jesus work in my life in the way that he wants to? Can Jesus work in your life the way he wants to? And the answer is, of course he can, because he's God. But do we let him or do we limit him? You know what I'm saying? By the way we respond to God, by the way we spend time with him, by the way we open our heart to faith, do we let him or do we limit him? I brought something really important and precious to me. It's not this box, don't worry. But it's in this box because I need to keep it safe. I need to keep it secure. It's something that's changed my life for years, decades actually. It's something that I think is really important and I like to talk about it, but I also know, maybe like you, that it's this. My little plastic Jesus. See, this is how I think a lot of us treat Jesus. We put him in a box and then when we need something, we need him, we pull him out and we go, go Jesus, take care of that. Come on Jesus, I need this. Jesus, what are you doing? I don't get this. Why are you having me go through this? Come on Jesus, get out of the box and start doing something. I think by our expectations... And our view of Jesus, a lot of our life, leaves him in the box. Instead of lets him live and change us and move us. Can you relate with a plastic Jesus? Maybe you have a plastic view of Jesus. Keeping him in a box of your expectations. See, I think we put Jesus in a box a lot in our life. And I want us to allow Jesus to speak this morning, to really see the kingdom expressed. We have to let Jesus out of the box. Let me pray. God, thanks for this morning. I just ask one simple thing, that we'd want you more. That you could speak this morning. You could change our heart. You could change our life. That we wouldn't hold back and we wouldn't keep you in a box that you would bust forth and we would allow you to transform our life today. In your name, amen. Verse one, as we pick up the story, says this, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. See, Capernaum is this ministry base. He'd been out on the field, he'd been sharing the Sermon on the Mount, and now he enters Capernaum. He'd been there before, he's had this ministry happening there, several of his disciples are there, but he ha- he's just finished these sayings. What were those? You guys need a lot more coffee this morning. Show up at 10.50, drink coffee, and be ready. This is what we just studied the last four weeks. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's where Jesus says, hey, there's something incredible that I want to tell you about. It'll change your life. But we're so used to this empire living. We breathe it in. We breathe it out. We're flying upside down as we're trying to figure out, who are you, Jesus, and what does it mean to live? That he has called us to live in such a way that kingdom eats empire for breakfast. And so if we're honest, we're really wrestling with what that looks like, aren't we? What does the kingdom look like? How do I live it out in 2016? What am I supposed to do, Jesus? And so I think Luke makes a shift from hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom to seeing Jesus live out the kingdom in these passages. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When Centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking to come and heal his servant. And so we have this Centurion. He's a leader of a hundred soldiers. He's a Roman officer. He has a level of skill, a level of experience, a level of smarts, and he oversees a hundred warriors. 
He's a pretty big deal in this community. He'd be like a captain of the police officers. And he has this servant, really a slave, in the final moments of his life. He's going to die shortly. And some of you, you've been by the bedside of someone who's dying, haven't you? You've seen them in their last moments. The doctors have done everything they can. Families and friends have done everything they can. There's nothing left to be done apart from a miracle of God. That's where this servant is at. That's where the centurion's at. The centurion has been exhausting all his resources. He's a guy with significant empire resources in this town. But he ends up saying, I can't do anything more. I can't do anything more for this servant who I love. I'm at the end of my ability. All my resources, all my knowledge, all the doctors that I've tried and called. But I've heard of this Jesus guy. Maybe he can do something. Because he's done some miraculous things in town before. And since he's a Jew, I think I will send these Jewish elders to him. These leaders of the city in Capernaum. And normally, you've got to understand the context here. There's some tension between the Romans and the Jews, right? Have you known that? Have you studied that? There's some tension going on. Because Rome came in and kicked out the leaders and set up their own government at this time. He works for the Roman government. He is the symbol of the police force in the area. They are essentially overseeing the Jewish way of life and keeping them in check. Some would actually say they're oppressing the Jewish people. Different races, different cultures, different religions, different belief systems, and they're clashing at this moment. You could even say it like this. It's the 49ers and the Seahawks, all right? The 49ers were the old power. They've got rings on people who have gray hair in the division right now. But the Seahawks, they're the new power. By the way, I grew up in Washington. I love the Seahawks. But that's what we're saying. There's this moment where there's this tension. There's this division rivalry. There's the old power that's now been snuffed out by the new power who's going to make a Super Bowl win this year. (laughs) And as we look at this story, the centurion's a bit different than the average centurion. Not only does he care about a slave, some would consider them property at this time and culture. Not only does he care about the slave, he cares about his neighbors, the Jewish community. Verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is what? Worthy. To have you do this for him. Jesus, he's worthy. You need to go and heal his servant. He is worth it. For he loves our nation. And he's the one who built our synagogues. I mean, literally, these Jewish elders are saying, Jesus, you need to do this guy a solid. You need to do what he's asking because he's important and he's done some really incredible things for us. Because of all that he's done for us, he deserves it. And I think that's box one where we put Jesus in. I think that's a box one where we have this plastic little Jesus that we pull him out when we need him and say, Jesus, you owe me. Jesus, you owe me. Because of who I am, And what I've done, I'm worthy of you doing things that I want you to do. Can anyone relate? I can. I mean, you have your Jesus membership card, right? You remember to pick it up, right? 
In case you didn't know, we have these Jesus membership cards. They're $99 a year. They're really great. I love mine because it entitles me to get here a half hour early to beat the crowds. I get an extra 2% back on my tithes and offerings as cash blessings, right? I get the premium coffee. This is why you're not awake this morning because I'm a member Jesus membership card and I know where the premium coffee is. And in case you really didn't know this, this is why you want the Jesus membership card. You get your own parking space. It's worth it. And, of course, the occasional foot rub, right? I mean, after all I do for Jesus, I expect him to do things for me. Or at least not to allow bad things to happen to me. If I'm honest, I want a life of ease and blessing. I mean, I got my Jesus guy. He's giving me the thumbs up. He's pointing at me. This should be an easy relationship where my life is smooth. It's how I want it to be. And I've done enough for Jesus over the last 20 years. I should. He owes me. I mean, I think this is a very common way that we relate to a plastic Jesus. But it limits our experience of him. I mean, don't get me wrong. The centurion, he gets a gold star. This guy's a pretty cool dude. He is showing us kingdom principles over empire rights with his acts of service. He's investing his time, his treasure, and his talents like a good moral dude. But it's not because of his joy in Jesus. Don't miss that. See, God wants to take him deeper. Jesus uses this moment to take him deeper from a moral life of doing good to a personal relationship. And that takes, that takes getting his attention. See, any of us who followed Jesus, at some point, God had to get our attention. It might have been slow and gradual. It might have been a two by four over the head. But God had to get our attention for us to go from where we were pursuing and what we were living. The Bible calls us dead in Ephesians 2 to a life in him. It takes getting our attention at some point. And I know some of you this morning, you would relate to this centurion. You'd say, I feel like this guy. I'm generous, successful, I've got a great house and a good car and 2.5 kids and a cat that I like or a dog that I like and a cat I ran over. I don't know. Depends if you like cats or if you like dogs. I'm pretty good to the people that, I, that work for me. I'm a good boss. I'm a good neighbor. I said hi to them the other day. I waited for them at the mailbox line, you know? Things are just aren't going that bad in my life. I've got my life pretty much under control. You could relate to the centurion, most of his life up until this point. Life's actually going pretty good for you. There's no crisis. There's no emergency. There's no 911 call up Jesus. You don't feel like your life is in ruin this morning. You feel like you're a pretty decent person. I mean, you believe in God. And so you're like, why do I need Jesus in my life? That might mess it up. I don't want him to mess up a good thing that I got going now. And my question to you is this. Just like the centurion. Could God be trying to get your attention? Could God be trying to get your attention this morning? Again, we see this. And when they came to Jesus, the Jewish elders, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He loves our people. He's doing things for our people, for our culture. He's not trying to obliterate it. He's trying to bless it. And he's built our house of worship. Jesus, he's worthy. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends different than these Jewish elders, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for what? 
So it, it's not up there. Well, it is up there. I am what? Do you see the contrast? I mean, you could circle that because this is really what the whole story hinges on. See, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. See, these Jewish leaders said, these Jewish leaders said to Jesus, you owe this guy. He's worthy because he's been really nice to us. He built our place of worship. And when we put Jesus in the box, if you owe me, we end up having this debtor relationship, right? Have you experienced that before? You feel like, if I feel like when I've sinned, then I owe God. I got to do extra penance. I got to go through purgatory. I got to go through reincarnation. Whatever it is for you, whenever you sin, then you feel like you got to earn God's affection back. Serve more, give more, do more, pray more, Bible, hike, whatever it is. We have this debtor relationship where if we fall short and we step in stupid and we sin, then somehow now we owe God. But. And this is where the debtor relationship gets really confusing. If I do good, then God owes me. But again, notice the centurion response. One of the most freeing things I can tell you is this. Jesus owes you nothing. Except for the wrath due, the penalty due for your sin. That's all you and I are owed by Jesus. That's it. And you can either find that frightening or you can find that freeing. Because Jesus owes us nothing, but he gave us everything in the cross. In a relationship with him. That's who Jesus is. Verse 7 continues the story. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority. That's really key. With soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, this is really the key. So the centurion trusts in Jesus' authority, not his own worthiness. See, the centurion trusts in Jesus' authority, his ability, not his own worthiness. That's how we start to see Jesus come out of the box and come alive in our life. The second box that I think we put Jesus in is this. Jesus, you can share the throne with me, right? This is how we do it a lot. We sit on the throne of our life. We put Jesus here on the side and we go, hey, let's figure out how to have a co-relationship here, Jesus. It might be codependence. It might be you get this part and I get this part. But we try to find the relationship where he gets authority, but I retain authority over the things I want. Can you relate? I call this one-cheek faith, by the way. Where Jesus, you get to do this. You get to do the awesome things. You get to do the cool things. But I get to retain control in the things that I think really matter. And so who's in charge of your life, church? If you are honest, who's on the throne of your life? Because if you're trying to one-cheek it with Jesus, someone's going to fall off at some point. Can I be honest? There's a lot of times I'd rather be in control. Let me just be really honest. There's a lot of times I'd rather be in control. 
I mean, I totally love for Jesus to get the highlight reel. I'll let him make the big plays and do the cool things. And I can point to him and say, see what I trusted Jesus to do? But I really would like to still be in control because I don't want to pay the cost if I can't stay in control. I want to point to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, why don't you go do that? Poof. Do the miracle. Do the cool thing. Walk on water. Turn some water into wine. Do something that makes me look good, but I can't relinquish full control because I live in an empire world that tells me I need to be the boss. I need to be the captain of my own ship. But what I'm discovering is in my growing relationship with Jesus, it leads me to trust him and release authority to him. And so this centurion He does something pretty unique. He chooses an emptying when he's used to being in control. He literally says, God, have your way. I trust you. Because this is what the centurion discovered. There's a huge difference between recognizing Jesus' authority and living by it. Church, I want you to know there's a huge difference between recognizing, studying, espousing, and saying, and blogging, and Facebook posting that Jesus has authority and living by it. This isn't just some abstract theological concept he's thinking about. This is what the centurion has come to believe about Jesus. It's a humble dependence, acknowledging Jesus' authority and capability. And Jesus responds to that. Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such, what? Faith. Faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. See, the centurion was the moral good boy. But without this tragedy... He would have never met Jesus. Don't miss that. Without this tragedy, he would have never met Jesus. He would have lived a good moral life. He would have done good in the empire. But he would have missed out on Jesus. His willingness to surrender authority, his willingness to surrender privilege and prestige and power, that's what opens the way for God's healing power to be shown and for life change to incur. I want to try and free you this morning with something. A lot of times, I think we consider faith like a balloon. We're, look at my faith. I've done a little work. I put a little effort into it. It's kind of big. And we go, okay, no more. Wow, look, my faith's pretty big. My faith's pretty strong. My faith, it looks good on me. I like what it's looking like. I look how much I put into my faith. See, church, faith is not a balloon. Faith is an anchor. Where is it grounded? Where is it placed? Really, in whom is it placed? You see what I'm saying? What are you afraid to turn over to his control. If you want to let him out of the box and you want to stop having a plastic Jesus that just smiles and goes at your command, then you've got to ask the question, what are you afraid of to turn over to his control? What worry? What pain? 
that relationship? How about your job? Or your finance? See, we live in 95762, which is the land of posers. I'm just gonna be honest, it's the land of posers. Because we, we believe this myth in America that says as long as you have everything and look good, then life should be good. And that's just simply not true, right? You're supposed to have the big house, the big car, the big bucks, the big job. People saying, well done. And that becomes our identity. What are you afraid of to turn over to his control? Because here's the deal. God often brings us to an I can't. So we learn to say God can. God often brings us to an I can't. So we learn to say God can. What's that in your life right now? Luke continues to show us the kingdom with verse 11 in the next story. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So again, we got the disciples, that side, the crowd, that side. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. See, first we had the centurion He is strong, he is brave, he is generous, he is a somebody in the empire learning to live in the kingdom by trusting Jesus. But now, Luke switches the focus on a widow, one who is not worthy in the empire. She's poor, from a small town, no husband, no son, and no future right now. She's already been to one funeral. Don't miss that. She's a widow. She's been through this. She's already been grieving. She's already wore black. She's already went through the city gates to bury her husband. And this wasn't the plan she had for her life growing up, right? I mean, as a young teenager, she probably went, I get to wear white and there'll be flowers and the photography will be beautiful and I can post it on Facebook and all my friends will click like, right? And then, That moment she found out she was pregnant. It's a son. Rejoice. My days are complete. This is so great. My dreams are being fulfilled. But right now her pastime is no longer cooking the family meal. Or making the little booties for the baby. Or keeping the kiddo from getting ran over by the camel. There's no more dreams of grandkids, guys. Her hobby right now is worry. Is grief and worry and brokenness. That's what's consuming her. I mean, understand, there was no such thing as social security or retirement or unemployment, especially for a poor woman in a nowhere town like Nain. And that's box three for us this morning. The third box that I think we stick Jesus in and never let him out because we want to be in control is this. Jesus You're not supposed to make me too uncomfortable. We set the limits on how much we think Jesus can make us uncomfortable. We set the limits on how far we think Jesus should go. And we will gladly say, God, do this because it's really cool and I'll look good. But don't do that because it'll make me feel uncomfortable. And trust me, I've been there, church. I've walked into a meeting 
I've walked into a situation where I feel like God pulled the rug out from under me. I'm gun shy of others because of how I've been treated in 20 years of pastoral ministry. And I've asked God time and time again, don't you care? Why did you allow this to happen? Did you not see it coming? Don't you care? And bitterness threatened to consume my life. I'll also say this. I can guarantee you this. As we release control and embrace a deeper relationship with Jesus, he will put us in places that make us uncomfortable. Have you experienced your faith come alive to that point where he has put you in some place that was uncomfortable to stretch you and to grow you? I want you to write this down this morning. Pain is producing what in your life? Pain is producing what in your life? It might be a strained relationship with your monster-in-law, I mean your mother-in-law. It might be something at work. But pain is producing what in your life? The fears, the worries, the secrets, the addictions, the financial issues and pressures. Because again, maybe God's trying to get your attention. We talk about on-growing spiritual transformation. And that happens when we're not in our comfort zone. We don't grow in our comfort zone, church, when Jesus is in the box of our expectations of him. We will not grow to the level God has called us to. We do not grow in our comfort zone, but he does comfort us. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, do not weep. Someone said this at one point. Compassion is their pain in our heart. Their pain in our heart. And see, in our story, Jesus goes out of the way to pursue people who aren't even aware of him. He goes out of his way to pursue people who aren't even aware of him. That's our Jesus. Jesus has chosen to go to her. Jesus has chosen to love her. Jesus has chosen to pursue her. Jesus has chosen to serve her. And so who is God calling you to love on right now? Because it'll be out of your comfort zone. Because it's easy to love people on our list. You know what I'm talking about? We have this list in our back pocket. It's people that we like. It's people that we love. It's people that are easy to, to love because they deserve it or they've done something for us or we like them or they're like us. But who is God calling you to love on right now who isn't very lovely? Because Luke is showing us kingdom love, not just empire affection. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. And some of you are like, bad Jesus, don't touch the beer, right? It's really how you say it. I had to look it up because I wanted to call it buyer, but it's beer. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> well, at least I got a pity laugh out of that. One of the first places I was a pastor, I was walking through a Safeway and another guy from the church was in there and he had a cart and he had beer in his cart and he literally parked it and stood between me and his cart. And I'm like, dude, have freedom in Christ. 
But this is exactly what's happening in this story. That's why the bearers stood still. Jesus didn't do something he was supposed to. You don't touch a dead body. Even in our culture, you don't touch a dead body. This is a wooden plank. They're carrying the the corpse shrouded in some sort of linen out of the town because you go bury it before sunset so the house isn't defiled. You don't touch the dead body. I mean, even when we touch gross things, we wash our hands. There's not the same sanitary things. And so Jesus goes out of his way to touch the dead body. And the crowd goes, what the Jesus? Because touch is a way to show care. And caring for people has a cost. You see what I'm saying? If we're to love people like the kingdom and not just the affections of the empire, loving has a cost. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. See, Jesus didn't do this. So we go, oh, that's nice, Jesus. What a great story. I might even teach it in Sunday school sometime. He did it so that we would follow his example, church. To love our neighbor into the uncomfortable spaces of life. To meet them where they're at. Not where we're at. If we really believe in an R3 lifestyle, that means we love people where they're at. Not where we're comfortable at. See, religion tells us something really key. The more I'm isolated from people, the holier I can become. Have you ever noticed that? That's what religion teaches. Don't go over there. They might infect you. Don't have those relationships unless they're all Christian all the time, doing all the things that you're supposed to do. If I isolate myself from people, then I can become holy. That's not the example of Jesus at all. That is a religious empire. See, we must love real people, not our ideal of people. Because Jesus has done the same for you and me. Wrapping up. Can you imagine the emotions of this moment? I mean, this dead man sits up. He starts talking. He gets off this plank, and Jesus takes him to his mother. Can you see her face? Can you feel her joy? I mean, how long do you think she held her son for? Do you think she was screaming with joy now instead of mourning and wailing, jumping up and down? Because her son was restored to her. The tears of grief turned to tears of shock and joy coming down her face. She got her son back. How will you respond to Jesus today? I love how the passage wraps up. Verse 16 and 17. Fear sees them all. Hey, we used to think Jesus was this. And now we've seen him as more. We don't want to go back to this. That's fear, a healthy fear and reverence. Fear sees them all and they glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So your faith and my faith can grow as we understand and experience Jesus' authority. And our faith can grow as we understand how much we are loved.
God, thanks for this morning. We know it's a holiday weekend. We've probably been spending a lot of time up late at night. We've got a lot of plans to eat chips and eat hot dogs and blow up some fireworks. But we don't want to move into that quite yet. Thank you for the celebration. But God, we want to take some time to deal with you. Really to let you deal with us. Because I think we put you in a box. Maybe we would word it a little different or we, we really don't want to admit it this morning, but I think we put you in a box. I don't want a plastic Jesus anymore. I want you to have your way. I want to see you fully, more alive in my life, living through me. I, I want to embrace the kingdom and not just live in the empire. And so for a few moments, let me just ask you this. Where are you trying to be in control? instead of letting him be in control. I think the Spirit will bring to mind something if you let him. And second, who, right now, I want you to think of a who, will you show kingdom love and compassion to? Maybe it's your neighbor you need to invite him to your barbecue. I know he gets things stuck in his teeth and he talks weird and it's just uncomfortable, but Jesus loves him. Who will you love with kingdom love and compassion for? Because let's be ready to put away a plastic Jesus and embrace him for real. God, in your power, for your glory, and in the mighty name of Christ, Amen.